teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Lord, we thank you. Just as Tim was saying earlier that though we have nothing to offer you that is worthy of you, yet you still welcome us through the blood of Christ, through his sacrifice, to come to you, to be able to pray to you, to ask you for things, to give you uh, praise and honor. And Lord, we do not want to take that privilege lightly. Lord, we thank you for your word, which you have given to us to instruct us how you can be praised in a manner that is honoring to you, how we can serve you and uh, seek to glorify you with our lives. We thank you for the rich instruction that it gives, and we thank you for your spirit who enables us to apply it. And I pray that he would be at work in our hearts this morning. We pray all these things in the name of our Savior. Amen. Well, one day in the grocery store, a a man noticed a woman who was pushing her daughter, young daughter, in a grocery cart. And and the first time he passed by them, they were in the cookie aisle. And the, the mother's daughter was asking for a cookie, to which her mother said that she couldn't have one. It was going to spoil her meal. And As all children do, she said, yes, mother, I understand. Thank you very much for looking out for me in that way. (laughs) Actually, no, she began to fuss and complain. So her mother said gently to her, now, Lucy, we we have less than half of the aisles left to go. Don't get upset. We'll, We'll be done soon. The man saw them again as they were in the drink aisle together and he was passing by. He heard the child cry out, mommy, I want some juice. Give me some juice, mommy. But again, mother said no. That prompted the child to whine and to cry. But in a sweet tone, her mother said, There, there, Lucy, it's it's okay. Only a couple more aisles to go. Just hold on. A few minutes later, the man found himself behind them in the grocery line at the checkout counter. And the child, again, as stores love to do, they put all that candy right there for parents to have to deal with. And so the child starts begging for some candy. And again, the mother says no. And to that, the the child then throws a big tantrum right there. And with great patience, the mom quietly said, Lucy, it won't be long, just a few more minutes. And then you can go home for a snack and and a long nap. Well, the man was impressed. Uh, The man wanted to, uh, he made a point to want to find this woman in the parking lot just to compliment her. And as he approached her, he said, I I couldn't help noticing how gentle and, and kind and patient you were with little Lucy here. But before he could get out another word, the, the mother interrupted him and said, My little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Lucy. <laughs> okay, you got it. <laughs> Can you identify with her? Yeah, there are, those, there are those times where it's all a parent can do just to maintain their sanity. Some days there's no energy left in the tank. Some days we're, we're unsure of what to do. We're in a circumstance, and Lord, give me wisdom. I have no clue how to respond to this. Sometimes we are in a situation where our patience is hanging by a thread, or sometimes the thread's just been cut. And you know, we can get so caught up in the day-to-day struggles in parenting, we lose sight of the, the big picture. 
we forget just what it is we're supposed to be doing as parents as we're caught up in that moment. And thankfully, God does not leave parents without hope or direction. And one of the places we find that direction is in our passage in Ephesians 6. And here families are given by God exactly what they need to know in order to glorify Him in their home. And I would ask if you could please stand as I read from Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. God says through the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, Paul addresses both children and parents here. Both are given two commands. God commands children to obey and and honor their parents with the God-honoring obedience as to the Lord himself. Remember quickly, cheerfully, completely. All the way, right away, and some of you were listening last time. With the happy heart. You've been teaching that to your toddlers, right? All the way, right away, with the happy heart. That is God-honoring obedience. But like anyone who is under authority, children are in a vulnerable position, right? They are at the mercy of the one in authority over them. And so Paul gives instruction to that authority, especially to dads. You're not allowed to parent in any way that you see fit. You have parameters, you have constraints, you have instruction and direction given by God, just as husbands were given that instruction and direction in leading their wives. And this whole section that Paul began in Ephesians 5.22 all the way through 6.9, where he gives specific instruction to homes and those who are in the home, this is a unique section in Paul's day because in the ancient world, Roman and Greek and Jewish writings all had this uh, communicated this idea and it spoke only to those who were in the subordinate roles, those who were under authority. But Paul here is unique in that he gives instruction not only to those under authority, but also and especially to those in authority. They are just as accountable to God as are those who are under authority. This was very important in light of what was going on in Paul's culture. In Roman culture, there was a, a law called the Patria Potestas, which had this idea that father was a supreme authority. Actually, that means power of a father. In short, a power had more authority over his children than the government did. There are accounts of a child being laid at a father's feet to determine if the father wanted to keep that child or not. In fact, one letter was found that was written by a husband to his pregnant wife in which he said, if the children is a boy, if the child is a boy, keep it. Otherwise, get rid of it. So they had ultimate authority in the home and It's easy to see the potential for abuse in that kind of situation, right? It's easy to see where that authority could be abused even in Christian homes. And so Paul writes specifically to fathers here in verse 4 to help them understand their role is not as a dictator, but as a shepherd. They have a primary responsibility in the home to to shepherd their children. Not to the exclusion of the mother's role, but to the emphasis of the father's. And this mandate to fathers also does apply to moms as they come alongside their husbands in raising children. 
And Paul's mandate in verse 4 simply says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Dads are to take the primary role in parenting their children. We looked at this a few weeks ago as a parent's uh, priority. We saw that in the first and the last words, that dads are in the primary role to parent, and that the goal of parenting is to be of the Lord. That is, that our aim as parents is to move our children to put their confidence in God, to instruct and encourage them and to follow Him, to trust in Him, to hope in Him, to believe in Him. Our responsibility is to take our children to Jesus' feet. And by the way that parents are to do that is given here in verse 4 in two short commands. The first consists of only five words in Greek, the second only seven. And in these two commands, Paul gives us a wealth of instruction and direction in how to parent our children's, our children's, our kids toward that trust in Christ. The first command relates to a parent's pitfall. That first command is simply, do not provoke your children to anger. The word here means the idea of to exasperate, to irritate, to, to make angry. There's a parallel text in Colossians 3.21 where Paul says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. That word exasperate is, is a synonym for the word provoke in our text in Ephesians. and That word has the idea of to embitter, to stir up, to rouse, to anger, to irritate. So those two verses in Ephesians 6.4, Colossians 3.21 essentially give the same command. And before we dig into this command, I want us to take a step back for a minute and consider these two passages. Ephesians 6.4, Colossians 3.21 essentially contain all of the instruction given to us in the New Testament on parenting directly. That's it. We could include Titus 2.4 where Paul uh, speaks of mothers. They're indirectly instructed to love their children. But primarily we have only three explicit commands consisting of 26 words in the Greek, and that's it. Those are the only commands to parents given in the New Testament on parenting. Two commands in Ephesians 6.4 and one in Colossians 3.21. And of those three commands, two of them are the same. Two out of the three. Don't provoke your kids to anger. Don't exasperate them. And you'd think if Paul was only going to give three instructions in all of his writing, that he'd give three different instructions. But he doesn't do that. The question is why? What's the message here to parents? Of all the things we need to consider in parenting, the first thing we need to do is look at ourselves. That's the point. We must give primary attention to how we interact with our kids. By repeating this command in both passages in the present tense, Paul is telling parents that we need to be doing consistently self-examination first because we are prone to exasperate our children. And he's not so subtle about that point, is he? In Ephesians 6, 4, it is the first command that Paul gives. In Colossians 3.21, it's the only command that he gives. Think about that a minute. As he's writing to the Colossians and he's going to give instruction on parenting, the only thing he tells them is don't exasperate your kids so they don't lose heart. That's all he says. It's pretty insightful, I think, for parents to be thinking about that. Listen, if you want to be a good parent, don't miss what God is saying here. 
you have a tendency to undermine your parenting by exasperating your kids. Paul says in Colossians 3.21, when we do that, we cause our children to lose heart, to be discouraged, dispirited, to lose motivation, to just feel like giving up. Some of the very problems that you may be having with your child may be because of you. You may have disheartened them by how you've treated them. If you're dealing with an angry, an embittered, a depressed child, the first place to look is not in their heart, but in yours. That's the principle that Jesus gave us regarding all human relationships in Matthew 7, didn't he? You know the text. Do not judge lest you, so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And you remember the illustration that Jesus gave after that had to do with eyesight and lack thereof. Why, why do you notice the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Jesus said, or how can you say to your brother here, here, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the logs in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. These words from Christ, they're they're really foundational to all human relationships. We're to always remember that before confronting someone else about their sin, about their offense, we need to look where first? Ourselves first. And Matthew 7 is an especially important text for parenting. It's the same principle Jesus is giving here that Paul was alluding to as he was instructing parents. Because, you know, as parents, we're constantly seeing the faults and sins and offenses in our kids, right? We are uh, often bringing those things up, correcting them, noticing these things, giving them instruction. And we need to be doing this. But we must be careful how we judge, looking first to our own sin. And that may sound odd to you. Aren't I the one in authority? Aren't I the one who's determining this God's standards and holding my children to them? Yes, you are. But you need to remember, you're not a perfect parent. Paul's reminding us of that. So parents, Paul puts the ball in our court first. And he says, look first at your own log. That says, you know what? We need to be carefully considering any ways that you might be provoking your child to anger, that you may be irritating or exasperating them. Again, we we often make their sin the entire focus to the neglect of our own. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Now, some may think here, but well, but my child, they often get angry when I expose their sin or correct them or bring discipline. Does that mean I'm just not supposed to do that? Well, no. Paul gives in the very next breath, the very next statement in Ephesians 6, 4. We are to discipline, to correct our children. But we do need to take care in how we do that. That we don't add to, their, add to the provoking by not doing it in a manner which God calls us to. Consistent, godly, loving correction that's not done in anger usually does not produce an angry child. And there are many other ways that we can provoke our children. It's interesting, Paul only gives a specific command here don't, not to do it. But he, he doesn't give us specifics. So the question is, well, how? What are ways that I do provoke my child or potentially could provoke my child to anger? Well, a good place to start is to ask yourself, what provokes you? 
especially by those who are in authority over you? How do you respond when someone speaks to you harshly or rudely? What about when you're around an angry person? Or when someone is irritable or grouchy towards you? How does that affect you? Are you provoked when you're constantly criticized? How about if someone you care about rarely compliments or encourages you? Would you be disheartened if a loved one never showed affection towards you? How do you feel when you're teased or put down or when someone is condescending towards you? These could provoke. These could discourage. These could exasperate or dishearten you. Could they not? Well, our kids are no different. They can get exasperated when we do these things to them. You can also exasperate your children by overprotecting them, especially as they get older and not giving them responsibilities or entrusting things to them, showing that you trust them with different tasks. You could exasperate them by overindulging them, by catering to all their wants and desires, or by being inconsistent with rules, changing the standards, sometimes disciplining or or bringing correction, other times not. You can provoke your children to anger by hypocrisy in your own life when you don't hold to the same standards that you are requiring of your kids. Or through excessive discipline that outweighs the infraction. Or by insulting their dignity by slapping or hitting them or or giving them verbal insults, especially in public. You can provoke your child to anger by you disciplining them in anger or yelling at them or correcting them in frustration. Would you just knock it off? I'm tired of that. How would you feel if your sin was exposed in that manner? You can dishearten them by expressing little or no affection to them, either physically or verbally, or by using love as a reward. I will love you if. You can exasperate them by rarely offering compliments or words of encouragement, by showing favoritism of a sibling or another child. Has your child ever heard the words, why can't you be more like? These are just some examples. So parents, I have a little homework assignment for you. Actually, I have two for you today. The first one is, I want you to go to our website. There's a handout on ways that we can exasperate our children. And I want you to to print that out or you can look at it online and just rate yourself in the various areas that are brought up there. And then I want you to give that to uh, your spouse and to a close friend and have them rate you. And then I want to give you a bigger challenge. I want you to sit down with your kids or your child and I want you to teach them Ephesians 6, 4. You need to be doing that anyway, right? But explain to them how God desires for you as a parent and the responsibilities that he's given you. We often point them to Ephesians 6, 1, as we should. But we need to also point them to Ephesians 6, 4, so that they understand the responsibilities God has given you. Not only to discipline and instruct, but also to not provoke them. Do you skip over that one when you go through that passage? They need to understand that. And then after you explain that to them, ask them to rate you. Ask them, son or daughter, are there any ways that I can tempt you to be bitter or angry with me? And then the hardest part is just listen. Don't defend yourself. They may say lots of things that may be silly. But you know what? Prayerfully consider what they are telling you. Because if someone shows you an area in your life where you are sinning against the Lord or you're bringing offense and that area needs correction, you need to listen to that, whether it's coming from your kids or not. And we can tend to set up this 
this pedestal, this hierarchy in our homes where I'm the, the parent, I do no wrong, you are the kid, I'm here to correct you and point out your sin and expose your sin, but don't touch me. How would you feel if the authority in your life, especially authority in the church, treated you that way? We need to be open with our children. That does not relinquish your authority in their lives. You're actually showing them you're a person under authority as well. And God has given you direction in how you are to parent. And you're asking them to help you. So make sure to consider that. And in doing this, you're showing your kids that you want to obey the Lord too. And that you care about what they think. That you want to be a good parent. If you make a concerted effort at this, at examining yourself and and work and not provoking your children, you will see a difference in your home. Paul thought this issue was important enough that he repeated this command. So this is an instruction that we need to take heed of. And it's an instruction that is not just in regards to the parent-child relationship, but for all of us. We all need to take to heart. Are there ways that I provoke or embitter or, or exasperate others around me? If there's been a situation where another person has become angry with you or irritated or or annoyed or exasperated, do you ever ask yourself or consider how maybe you might have tempted them to that? It doesn't excuse their response. I'm not saying that at all. It doesn't justify how they reacted. But we need to do all we can to not knowingly tempt someone else to sin, don't we? Proverbs 29.8 says, Arrogant men set a city aflame, but wise men turn away anger. We all need to have this wisdom in all of our relationships, but especially with our children. For a parent's pitfall is provoking your children to anger. Paul then gives a second command in Ephesians 6.4, which I call the parent's practice. He says there, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but... And there's a strong contrast in the Greek here. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up has this idea of to nurture, to care for, to provide for, to bring to maturity. The only other time it's used is actually just a few verses earlier in Ephesians 5.29 where Paul says that we nourish, we care for, we nurture our own bodies. The word's not restricted only to that physical nurturing, but because of that last phrase in Ephesians 6, 4, of the Lord, that tells us this nurturing is a spiritual nurturing that Paul is focused on here. And notice the subject of this command. Children are not told to raise themselves. The command isn't directed to them, is it? We have a responsibility, you as parents, to nurture and to raise them. And don't neglect that. Don't pass it off to someone else. Don't think that it happens on its own. So then just how are parents to raise and nurture their children spiritually? Well, Paul gives us two ways in the rest of the command, where it says in the New American Standard or ESV, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. King James says, in the nurture and admonition. The NIV has, in the training and instruction. American Standard has, in the chastening and admonition. Phillips translation says, in the teaching and discipline. You catch there's a variety here of words that are used to translate these two words, which have a very close idea. Both of them basically have this sense of instruction. But each word is nuanced and focused on the type of instruction. The first word, paideia, is focused on active instruction the second nuthesia is focused on verbal 
That first term, paideia, was used by the Greeks to refer primarily to instruction, to education in the Greek culture and the arts and philosophy. But none of the English Bibles translate this word as education. All of them have this idea of discipline or training or even chastening, which implies physical correction. But the Greeks, in classical Greek, that that was never the use of the word. It was never the idea of discipline or chastisement. Always the focus on the intellectual instruction. So why did the translators choose to translate it to denote this idea of chastisement? Are they remiss? Did they miss it here? Is chastisement even biblical? Is it commanded? Is spanking advocated or required from Scripture? When I said that word spanking, I opened up something, didn't I? Right? This is a huge issue in our culture. Some countries have outlawed the practice of any kind of physical correction. Some have said in the church that physical correction is wrong, that you should never do that. They point to Jesus' golden rule to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so they say that this is something that we're not to do, that nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to bring physical correction, to discipline our children. There's no verse that says, thou shalt not spank thy child if they disobey. I would ask you, how do you respond to that? How do you respond? Some may say, well, the Bible does command it many times in the Proverbs, such as in Proverbs 23:13, which says, do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. And there are several other Proverbs that have the same kind of, of instruction towards parents to use the rod on the backside of a disobedient child. It may seem pretty clear, but there's one thing we need to remember about the Proverbs. Is that they are truisms. They're not mandates or promises. They are general reflections on what life looks like for the person who follows the wise path as opposed to the one who follows, follows a foolish one apart from God. Proverbs 15.1, for example, says a gentle answer turns away. Now, is that the case every time? Every time you speak gently causes the other person to, to calm down. Just like the, the daughter in that grocery cart. No, right? But it's generally true. It's generally uh, applicable that when we do speak in gentleness, that it generally will calm down the situation. Proverbs 22.6 is another example. It says, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. That passage is not guaranteeing how your child will turn out, only saying that generally speaking, a child will not deviate from the path that is that's set forth on by his or her parents. So one would not be wrong to say that the Proverbs which advocate the use of the rod are not explicit commands to do so. Now, before you throw me out of the church on that issue, I'm going to spend some time next week really digging into this. Uh, I think it's very important we understand this issue. Does this mean that the Proverbs have nothing to offer us in regards to disciplining our children? Is there then no command in Scripture requiring physical correction? Are we free to use whatever approach works? In training our children, our parents who do spank wrong in doing so. These are very important questions. We need to clearly understand what does the Bible have to say about that so that we're not swayed by our feelings or by our culture. And as I said, we are going to look at this issue in detail next week because I want to give you time this week to do your second homework assignment. And that is I want you to look at this issue in the Bible yourself. I want you to get a concordance. And look up that word discipline, or for you Greek scholars, paideia, and see how is it used in the Bible, especially in the text 
that Brother Kempis read from earlier in Hebrews 12. What does Paul mean here when he uses this word, this idea of discipline? And I don't want you to consult any books, any sermons, any opinions on the Internet. I just want you to look at the Bible. I just want you to do a little study in the Word this week on that. But for today, let, let me say this, just so I can get myself in more trouble. When Paul uses the term paideia in Ephesians 6, 4, he does have in mind the use of physical correction. Since it's an imperative here, we are commanded to discipline our children. Now, that's not the only consequence that we are to use for correction. But if you do not use it at all as a parent or use it very little, then you're violating God's command here. Part of the training God requires of parents is to incorporate physical correction in that training. So those of you who were happy with me a minute ago are now angry with me too. But I really, I do want to give this time to think about it. And I really want us to look at the Word and understand what God says because this is a very important aspect in training our kids. And we really need to know, what does God say? What does He desire? What does He want? The second way Paul says that we are to bring up our children is by admonition, instruction. The word nuthesia comes from this idea of nous, mind, and to place, tithemi. It's this uh, literally to place in the mind. It has the idea of exerting influence, not just on the intellect, but also on the will through instruction. Thus the word came to mean admonish, to warn, to correct, to reprove. It's a, it's a moral appeal to change. So it is instruction, but it is aimed instruction. It is to counsel someone to warn them if they're on the wrong path and to show them how to get back on the right one. And parents need to be doing this constantly, bringing instruction from the Word of God to warn, to encourage, to correct, to enlighten, to build up, to reprove, to admonish their children. This word is, uh, is distinct from the first word in that it focuses on the verbal aspect of instruction, while the first word, paideia, focuses on the physical. And so what does this verbal instruction entail? Again, Paul doesn't give specifics, but the general principle. What does it look like? How is it put into practice? And again, we're going to spend some time next week looking at that term as well. See, I'm kicking the can down the road some more. It's not that I wasn't studying this week, but there's a question that I brought up a few weeks ago that I wanted to spend some time answering. I think it's appropriate and fitting for our discussion this morning. So we're going to look at discipline. We're going to look at instruction next week, Lord willing. But this morning, I want to, in the rest of our time, look at this question that was posed a few weeks ago from Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. If you remember there, it, was, it said, Children, obey your parents, as Paul gave the command to them. And that obedience as we talked about, was to be marked by being continuous to both parents, respectful, complete, without complaint or delay. And then in Ephesians 6, 4, as we saw this morning, parents are, are commanded to raise their children in conformity to God's standards, to bring them to obedience to parents and to the Lord, giving consequences if they disobey, warnings, instructions. And again, as we talked about before, this instruction in Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4, is given to believers. Remember, it began back in Ephesians 5, 18, where Paul commanded that we be filled by the Spirit. And then the rest of the passage, these are ways that, that what that looks like, an instruction given in a Spirit-filled life in the home. Well, to be Spirit-filled only applies to believers, right? So the question I offered at the end of that message was whether or not parents should require unsaved children to obey in the same way. 
Am I to hold my child to the same standard? Am I to hold them to God's standard and His commands in His Word? If I require them to obey, then aren't I teaching that the main issue is just to keep the law? Won't that cause my child to think that they can get saved by keeping rules? That God's happy with them as long as they're keeping the commands? Won't I be raising legalists and moralists, hypocrites who ultimately depend on good works to gain a right standing before God? Am I supposed to chastise them if they disobey? Do I admonish them for waywardness? Isn't giving consequences for disobedience just encouraging behaviorism? Just conforming my child to some external standards, even if in their heart they really don't love God? Aren't I supposed to be giving them the gospel, only show them grace and not expect them to keep the law if they don't have God's spirit within them? Why enforce God's standards upon them? Well, these are important questions, and I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 6 first to look at how we might answer them. And while you are turning there, I want you to think about this question. How did God parent the nation of Israel? A nation that was predominantly full of non-believers for most of its history. Did he not give them the law, Exodus 20, and then command them to obey it? In fact, if you look in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 5, Moses repeats the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel as they are in the, the plains of Moab. And then look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 6. Again, God speaking, Moses speaking to the entire nation of Israel, believer and non-believer. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you are to do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life. God required the entire nation to obey his commands. And when they didn't obey, did God say, oh, well, you know, they're not all believers, I guess, so I, I can't expect them to obey, especially not from the heart. Forget it, folks. Just, just come to me when you're ready, okay? In the meantime, do whatever you want. Is that how the Lord responded? Is that how he handled it? That question requires an answer. No, right? That's not how he responded. When they disobeyed him, God brought consequences in their life. He brought prophets to bring them instruction and warning with the intention to get their attention so that they would see the folly of their ways, that they would be driven to repentance and trust in God. And we see this over and over and over in Israel's history, don't we? Knowing that they would fail, God also made a provision for them that they could offer sacrifice and seeking forgiveness, a forgiveness that they could not earn. So what is the purpose of the law then? And why require obedience to it? Well, for that, I want you to turn now to Galatians. Galatians. This question, by the way, is not just one for our children, is it? It's one for all of us, for everyone. Why does God require us to keep his standards? Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians to rebuke them, really, because they were believing and buying into what false teachers were telling them. They were saying, you need to submit to the Mosaic law in order to be saved. You need to become a Jew first before you can become a Christian. In Galatians 2.16, this is what Paul's response was. 
Galatians 2.16, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So how are we justified? We're not justified by obeying the law, but by faith in in Christ. And then in chapter 3, Paul illustrates this through Abraham, who was an example of one who was justified by faith and not by works. That Abraham and the promises to him were given before the law. But Paul knew his opponents. He knew that false teachers would, would then respond by saying, So why did God bring the law of Moses then after Abraham? Sure, we can buy that God would accept a person by their faith before the law. But when God gave the law, that all changed, and we are now required to live by it. So if justification is by faith alone, why the law? Well, look at his answer in Galatians 3, verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone. That's to imprison everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. These are deep theological waters here, which we will not be able to wade through completely. But Paul is saying here basically, essentially, that God did not introduce the Mosaic covenant to be in competition or to to replace the covenant he made with Abraham. It isn't that one is saved by faith apart from works before the law, and then God changes it to be saved by works after the law, again, no flesh will be justified by works of the law. So we're back to that question. If the law doesn't give salvation, why did God give it? Paul says in verse 19, it was added because of transgressions. Verse 22, the scripture has shut up, or as I said, that word means to confine, to imprison, to to lock up everyone under sin. Verse 23, we were kept in custody under the law. We were handcuffed by the law. But you see, the law was never meant to be a means of salvation. Rather, it was given to expose our sinfulness because of transgressions. To show I'm a transgressor. That's the purpose of the law. To reveal our transgressing heart. To show our complete inability to obey God or keep His standards. Romans 3.20 says that by the works of the law, again, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law, it's like, a, it's like a mirror. You know, when you get up in the morning and look at yourself in the mirror and see the damage that was done the night before. And that mirror, though, it's not going to fix your problem, is it? It just shows you that you have a problem. It reveals the issues. It makes you aware that something is wrong. And I would add that the, that the mirror, the law is a good thing. It's good to have a mirror. Otherwise, if you didn't look at yourself and you went outside, you'd scare everybody. 
But we have that mirror there to help us and show us there's some things that need to get fixed here. In the same way, the law, it is a good thing because it reveals the problem. Romans 7, 7 says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Okay, so what does this have to do with parenting? Why are we over here in Galatians 3 talking about theological issues regarding the purpose of the law? Listen, one of the main reasons that we need to require our children to obey their parents, to follow the commands of Scripture, is not to make them think they can be right with God by obeying the rules. Actually, it's the very opposite. They need to see they could never be right with God because they cannot keep His standard. None of us can keep His standard. None of us can obey what God requires apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. They need to be held to God's standard so they would see the futility of their own efforts. Didn't Jesus say, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? Who can do that? Who can do that? No one. No one can do that on their own. That was Christ's point. And so parents, we must bring consequences. We must bring reproof and admonishing and warning and physical correction to show our children that sin is a big deal. Correction sends the message that that God, that sin matters to God, that it is bad, that it is wrong. It needs to be repented of, turned from, avoided at all costs. Fact, verse 13 of Romans 7, the, Paul says, The law shows sin to be utterly, exceedingly, terribly sinful. It's bad. And we can't water down or compromise what God requires us as parents to do to hold our children to God's standard so the law would expose their sinfulness and drive them to Christ, drive them to seek God's mercy and forgiveness and to rely on His grace. In fact, that's what Paul gets at in the very next verse in Galatians 3, verse 24. Look at it, what he says there. Therefore, the law has become our, our tutor or a taskmaster, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor, for you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That word tutor, I don't think is the best way to translate it. it can, that gives the idea just of an instructor. But actually, the word is pedagogos, which is uh, this word we get pedagogue from. It has the same root as that word paideia. And in Paul's day, a pedagogos was a slave who was assigned to be a child's guardian. And those that could afford it would assign the slave to kind of keep an eye on their child and make sure the child went to school, did their homework, did their chores, and stayed out of trouble. These guardians were often very strict and harsh. Someone you would rather be away from, not be with. But their function and purpose was to bring correction to the child, to show them where they have erred, and to keep them on the path. And Paul describes the law as our guardian, our, our taskmaster, because it shows us like that mirror where we fail and, and slaps us back saying, nope, nope, you broke it again. You broke it again. You're not keeping the standard. And Paul describes the law that way that shows us where we fail, that we cannot escape failure, and that motivates us to run to Jesus for freedom. He's the only one with the key to those handcuffs. 
And as your child recognizes that they cannot keep God's standard perfectly, they will be confronted by their own sin before a holy and righteous God. And they will realize they need forgiveness. And they will realize, and this is most important, that your child will see they're a sinner in need of a Savior. One of our children had a time where she was really struggling with lying. Yes, it was one of my daughters, but I have four, so I'm not going to tell you who. But she would get caught disobeying, and then she'd lie about it. You know, the kind where you got cookies on your mouth, right? That kind of thing. And she'd get caught disobeying, she'd lie about it, and, and I'm sure this has never happened to you, but it was a problem in our house. And so, so this child, we would bring a chastisement for that disobedience, but also more so for lying. Because in our home, the sin of lying was a big deal. There were three big no-nos. That was, you don't say no to your parents, you don't throw a tantrum, and you don't lie. Well, this went on for a while. And no matter how severe the consequences, she just kept lying and deceiving. And we spent a lot of time instructing her in the Word and trying to encourage her and help her to see why truth is so important and why it's such a good thing and why lying is so evil. And, you know, if the father's a, the devil's the father of lies. And after a long time of this, no change. Then one day, as she was being disciplined yet again for lying, She cried out in despair. I know it's wrong. I'm trying to stop, but I can't do it. I can't. She was acutely aware in that moment she could not keep God's standard. And in that moment, there was soil fertile for the gospel. You need to hold your child to obey God's commands so that they see the futility in trying to keep the law And parents, this is why you must be consistent. You can't hold them to the standard and then loosen the standard because what are you teaching them? You're teaching them they can keep the law or that God doesn't really care. He'll let you slide. It's fine. You're not helping your children by doing that because your children, just as every one of us, needs to see the evil of sin that we can't obey a good and loving and holy God. And for when your children see that, As my daughter did in that moment when she grasped that, then the beauty of Christ is unveiled. Because they will see that Christ, He's willing to forgive me. That that Christ is willing to accept me as His child despite my sin. That He would sacrifice Himself so that the consequences and the guilt of my sin could be removed from me. They would see that Jesus lived a perfect life and imparted it to them through their faith in him a gospel-centered home helps children see their sin so that they would see the beauty of christ's mercy and grace so that they'd be overwhelmed with gratitude that jesus would be beaten and tortured and die and rejected and suffer on my behalf that he would do that that they would rejoice in the truth of Romans 8.1, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that 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 would be a beautiful treasure to them because they'd realize, I stand condemned because I I am a rebel against God. I can't keep His standards and I don't want to. But then they would come to realize, be grateful for the fact that in Christ, there's no condemnation anymore for those sins. They would embrace the freedom that Christ gives over the power and consequences of sin. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that 
I delivered to you of the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Foundational truth, the gospel message, that Christ died for our sins on the cross. Remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus approaching? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The cross, Christ Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. And that, brothers and sisters, parents, that is not just some fact we want our kids to be able to spout out and articulate when they're asked how they know they're a Christian or how you can become a Christian. Jesus died for my sins on the cross. I articulated that thousands of times before coming to the Savior. It's not something that we want our children just to parrot. Our aim is not for them just to repeat that fact. The aim of your training and your instruction and your example is that your child would come to the point of saying, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Jesus died for me, a sinner. You want them to embrace that truth. Not just parrot some some statement of fact. Yes, he died on a cross, but he died on a cross so that they might know Christ. That they would embrace that wonderful truth. That is what you want your child to take to heart. That's what we want everybody to take to heart. No one should ever, ever, especially our kids, ever have a confidence in their standing before God because of their obedience to the law. It's because of their dependence on Christ. Dependence which he gives, by the way. And that's why we need to be consistent in our discipline and our instruction. Again, hold them to God's standard. Don't let up. And as you do, and their sin is exposed, oh, how marvelous the great rescuer of souls will be. As they realize they are on a river headed for destruction, headed for a waterfall over which they, they're going to be doomed. And to realize I have a great rescuer, the life vest, the lifeboat of Jesus Christ. That God has thrown into the water for me. Now it's likely that there are some here who have not come to that place. You may affirm that Jesus did come to earth. You may state that he is the son of God. That he did die on a cross for sin. You may even say that Jesus died on a cross for my sins. But you haven't fully embraced what that means. You haven't truly admitted and that you deserve god's punishment for sin and that you are a great sinner yeah i've done some bad things but but you think yourself generally i'm a good person and i i've committed some sins but i've committed many good things too to make up for it i've done more good than bad that's what everybody on this planet believes maybe at one time you even prayed to go to heaven but you really didn't see a lot of changes in your life after that you went right back to the sins that you were comfortable with before that prayer Maybe Jesus had some sentimental value to you, but he's not close to you. Church is an obligation. The Bible is seldom read. Listen, if, if that's you, listen in these moments. You know, when a person sees their sin for what it really is, that it, it, it is rebellion against a good, holy God. When a person realizes there's nothing, absolutely nothing that I can do to remove that sin and the consequences for it. And when that person falls before Christ and and begs and pleads for forgiveness and, and mercy that he freely offers through his death on the cross. And when that person comes to faith and submits to Christ, that person will be changed. 
That person won't be the same anymore. They'll be transformed. The Holy Spirit will have given them a new heart. Is that you? Is that you? Does the wonder and beauty and majesty of Christ overwhelm you? As we were singing those songs earlier, and just to, to Psalm 84, I'd, I'd rather be a doorman, a, a lowly uh, guy that opens the door for people to go into God's house than to be out dwelling in, in ease and comfort and happiness in the tents of the wicked. I'd rather be there doing this lowly task than anything else. Psalm 27, 4, one thing I've desired, and that I'll seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Does that describe you? Does the desire to serve and follow and sacrifice for Christ from a grateful heart, does that overwhelm you? Is there a love for Jesus that didn't used to be there? When you were singing, Jesus, the Lamb of God, worthy is your name. Were you just reciting words that you know? Or were you embracing the truth? You know, one day we'll be in the throne room, bowing before him, crying out those words. Is that you? Is that you? If you've never come to Jesus as a desperate sinner in need of mercy, you've never come to him at all. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I, I didn't come for those who think they're generally okay and they just they need a little nudge to get in. I came for those who are broken and desperate and guilty and contrite and needy and repentant, who know they stand condemned, but are falling at the feet of Christ begging for mercy. Those are the ones I came for. Again, I would ask, is that you? And is that your children? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, your law is good. It's wonderful. It reflects your character and your holiness. And it shows us, Lord, that we are a people that cannot keep it, that exposes our own sinful hearts and shows us that we are those who have not obeyed you. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't just give the law and give the consequences and walk away but that you sent your son that he might sacrifice himself, that he would sacrifice himself so that we could be right with you, that we could be forgiven of our sins, that we could be brought from separation to fellowship with you only because of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for opening our hearts and prompting us to see our need for a Savior. And I pray, God, no one would leave this room without recognizing that about themselves. Whether saved or not, we are all desperate sinners in need of a Savior. God, may your Spirit do a work now in us. It can only happen through Him. We depend on Him to do that work. And we sing now in gratitude and appreciation to our great Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.